And Father God, please open your word to us this morning that we would love it, love you, and be eager to serve you in obedience to it. In Jesus' name, amen. So uh, I don't know if you guys know this about me, but I'm pretty great with toilets. Um, Over my lifetime, I fixed a good many toilets that had a good many different problems. I just kind of seem to have a knack for it. I can just kind of see right away what the problem is and what to do about it. More than once, I've gone into a public bathroom where the toilet was out of order and walked out with it working again. (laughs) Now, I formed my acquaintance with the inner workings of toilets during the summer of my college freshman year when I served at a Christian summer camp for high schoolers. Uh, The camp was set up to gather high school teens of all faiths and none for a week in the summer and teach them about Jesus. There were talks morning and evening and Bible studies every day and in between great food and awesome activities. And the camp was built around a lot of counselors. We called them leaders. It was about a one to two leader to camper ratio. Uh, And most of those leaders were college students. In order to become a camp leader, you had to first spend a summer as what they called an assistant leader. And assistant leader basically meant janitor. All right, so the assistant leaders, all they did all week was empty the trash, mop, vacuum, and clean the bathrooms. And yes, when necessary, fix the toilets. Uh, which in a high school camp was needed surprisingly often. Um, And as the guy who was least appalled by that task, I became de facto toilet hero. Um, And I actually look back on that experience of that summer quite fondly because I was part of a team of zealous young Christian men, smart and capable young men who were set to lowly and thankless tasks, who did them cheerfully, We all slept in one room together on camping mattresses on the floor, and we were reading books like The Cross of Christ and Mere Christianity in our time off. During the days, each of us found a job that we disliked less than everyone else seemed to, and we did it with gusto. Uh, We did it to serve our Lord Jesus Christ, and we did it to spare our brothers, and we were glad of one another for helping to carry the load. And as I look back, I think that some of the most important lessons I ever learned in my life were learned that summer. It freed me from some of my arrogance. It taught me some humility. It taught me a whole lot about Jesus and what it meant that he is Lord and what a community built around his name can be like. And maybe most importantly, it taught me that Jesus has the right to spend my life in any way he wants to. There's no such thing as a task that's beneath me. That camp was really onto something in the way it prepared young men and women for Christian leadership. Mopping floors and fixing toilets gave us the formation we most needed. And of course, I see now that they got the idea straight from Jesus in passages like John 13. When Jesus stooped to wash his disciples' feet, he gave us a pattern to follow. So let's open up our Bibles, John chapter 13, page 900. Find the beginning of John 13. And I want to think about the foot washing as a drama in three acts. There's the before, the during, and the after. Uh, Before the event, we're going to ask, why now? During the event, we ask, why me? 
and after the event, we ask, what now? So before the event, our question is, why now? Why did Jesus do this now? Uh, because that's what John wants to tell us in the first three verses of chapter 13. Chapter 13 marks a dramatic change in John's gospel from what has come before. Jesus' public ministry, which lasted up to the end of chapter 12, was marked by a lot of conflict, an almost constant budding of heads with Pharisees and unbelievers. And Jesus worked every possible angle to convince the watching world of his true identity. But now here, we find him in the upper room, and it's just Jesus and his disciples. And we hear a markedly different tone. Now, at last, it's safe for Jesus to reveal to them much more of his heart, what he's really like. And the first thing he does is wash their feet. This is a startling act that would have left them dumbfounded. And John wants us to understand four reasons that Jesus did this now. I'm going to read back to you the beginning of chapter 13, and I want you to see if you can spot the four reasons. So starting in verse 1, it says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. So all of that is just the setup John gives to the event. It's a long setup and it's very beautiful. And we find in it four reasons that the foot washing happened now. Number one, the hour, because it was Passover and the time had come. Number two, the love, because this was part of completing his love for them. Number three is the betrayal, because Judas was about to act and end Jesus' life and ministry. And number four, the father, because of Jesus' identity in relation to his father. So I want to tease out those four reasons a little bit more. Number one, we have the hour. Verse one says, Jesus' hour had come to depart. Uh, the Greek word John uses here to say depart is a word that means to pass on, or I guess it could be pass over. Uh, I wonder if this isn't a bit of a pun, because John says before the Passover, Jesus knew that it was his time to pass over. John knew and we know that the Feast of Passover was really all about Jesus and had been from the beginning. The first Passover was the night in Egypt that Moses had ordered the slaughter of all the Passover lambs. Their blood was smeared onto the doorposts. And in the dead of night, the angel of death visited Egypt to slaughter all the firstborn sons in the land. But he passed over the houses of Israel when he saw the blood of the lamb on their doorposts. And that very night, Pharaoh freed Israel from slavery. The children of Abraham had kept this feast every single year, ever since, and it had always been really about Jesus. Jesus was about to die on the cross during the Passover feast as the true Passover lamb to spare all God's children from death and to free us from slavery to sin. So in John 13, verse 1, the hour is here because the feast is here. 
In other words, this had been planned in heaven from the beginning. Number two, the love. Verse one says, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And that word end is the Greek word telos. Jesus cried out from the cross, tetelestai, from that same root, meaning it is finished, it is complete. The telos is the end goal, the completion, the perfection, the fullness. So Jesus loved them fully. Jesus loved them perfectly. Jesus finished the work of loving them. And Jesus loved them all the way to the end of his life. Number three is the betrayal. Verse 2 blames the devil for seducing Judas. So we know that God had this moment planned since the beginning of the world, and his word had predicted it was going to happen for centuries. But nevertheless, at the time, the devil also had his own agenda for the same moment. The devil was playing dice too, but he was playing right into God's hands. His move right now with Judas influenced the timing. And number four, we have the Father. Jesus said, uh, verse 3 says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. So notice that Jesus did not act in any way to earn points with his Father. This was not about performance. This was not about reward or promotion. The Father had given all things into his hands, past tense. The Father's approval, the Father's reward came first. And here we find Jesus acting out of complete security in his own identity. Acting out of total confidence in who he was and what he had come to do. And it's not just security in the Father that's on display here. Jesus was also revealing the very heart of his Father. The cross and the foot washing reveal God. They are like God. They are God behaving according to his own true nature, his own self being presented to us. We learn that God is humble. God is faithful. God is love. So for all those reasons, now was the time for Jesus to act and to show that love. We all know that if you want to see perfect divine love, you look to the cross. The main symbol of the Christian faith, which has been the same for centuries, is the cross. If you look around this room, you can find several of them. When we look at the cross, we remember God loves me. Because greater love has no one than this, said Jesus, that he laid down his life for his friends. But we might think of the foot washing in John 13 as a kind of lesser cross, as the moon is to the sun, a lesser light. Maybe the foot washing is the second greatest display of love in the life of Jesus. And it's like the first in several ways. In the verses we've already seen, John has got us already thinking about the Passover, about tetelestai and love being completed, and about the devil's plan to put Jesus to death. These are textual links between the foot washing and the cross. And on top of these, there are also strong overlapping themes, aren't there? There's a the theme of humility, for the Son of God to stoop below the status of a slave. Even more than humility, both involve humiliation a demeaning of his own person. 
Both acts involve the gross parts of being embodied. They have an element of being disgusting. And partly because of their bodily disgustingness, both acts are intimate and both carry a strong symbol of cleansing and purification. Jesus washes us, both at the foot washing and at the cross. So I think it's helpful then to think of the foot washing as a kind of lesser cross, which draws a lot of its meaning and its power from the crucifixion that's coming, just as the moon draws its light from the sun. And we should wonder that if we struggle to accept the foot washing, how will we possibly accept the cross? The first is a stepping stone toward the second. So let's move on now to Act 2 and the actual event of Jesus washing their feet. And our question in Act 2 is, why me? Why me? We ask this question because Simon Peter asked it. So picking up in verse 4, it says, Jesus rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking the towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. In every part of this ceremony, Jesus looks just like a servant. Under his outer garment, he would have worn a short tunic, the same as a slave would wear. The towel and the bowl were the normal tools of this job. And it was an ordinary, everyday job. Everyone who went outside in sandals in the filthy streets would have needed their feet washed whenever they got home. And it was considered a gross job, akin to changing diapers or cleaning toilets. The rabbinic teachings dictated that Jewish servants should not be commanded to do this job, only Gentile slaves. But it was acceptable for family members to wash one another's feet. So a wife could wash her husband's feet, children could wash their parents' feet, and disciples could wash their rabbi's feet. And this suggests that although the job was a bit gross, it was also somewhat intimate. Now, Peter, he would have had his feet washed many times before in his life, probably mostly by his wife. We know that Peter was married. And Peter might very possibly have washed Jesus' feet before as his disciple. These foot washings, if they happened, would not have been mentioned in the Gospel accounts for being so routine as to be completely uninteresting. But this one is special. What bothers Peter here is not the action which was normal and necessary, but it was the fact that the action was being done by the wrong person. Uh, It was the wrong way around. Peter wonders in verse 6, Lord, do you wash my feet? And protests again in verse 8, you shall never wash my feet. And surely embedded in Peter's words here is the implicit request, please let it be the other way around. (laughs) Please let me wash your feet. Uh, It's a bit like when John the Baptist says to Jesus, shouldn't you be the one baptizing me? Um, There are two possible problems Peter might have had with Jesus coming to wash his feet, and both of them are interesting for us to think about. Uh, One is that Peter viewed it as far too demeaning a role for Jesus to take, and the other was that it was far too intimate of a role for Jesus to take. So as we think about our own relationship with the Lord, I wonder... Do we react against the idea of our Lord coming to serve us? Do we prefer instead that we should be the ones serving him? That's the only way around that feels comfortable. Do we find his help with our dirty feet hard to receive? Are we ashamed 
to let him see our woundedness, our past trauma, our sin and broken places, let alone put his hands out and touch those places, to put his hands onto all that disgustingness. The truth is that we must receive his help before we can belong to him or before we can be any use in serving him. He is our Lord. He's also the only doctor. Notice in the back and forth with Peter that Jesus' solution fits the actual problem. Peter starts off wanting no washing, and then he swings dramatically to wanting a full bath. But neither of those suits the real problem. The problem is he has dirty feet. So we see that when Jesus deals with a problem, be it physical or spiritual, he deals with the actual problem, neither more nor less. It's not a symbolic fix by some huge grandiose gesture. It's a real fix, and that means that Jesus is a good doctor. But perhaps we don't mind receiving his help, but we do react against the idea of God wanting a relationship with us to be this personal and intimate. Maybe we're happy enough serving God as king, but not admitting him as lover. The truth is that love and intimacy are not negotiable in the process of our salvation. <coughs> Excuse me. Jesus saved us out of love and for love, both because he loved us and couldn't stand to see us die, and also so that he could go on loving us as his adopted brothers and sisters forever. So the answer to why me is because I need it and because he has come for me. I, I too have dirty feet. Only Jesus can clean them. I must let him. Jesus said to Peter in verse 8, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. And that word share means a portion. Most often it was used of a portion of land, like a district, or like an inheritance in the promised land. We have no share with Jesus without first being washed. And if we can't accept the foot washing, how will we ever accept the cross? So finally for Act 3, where Jesus reflects on the event after it's happened, and we ask, what now? The simple answer is that we go and do likewise. Verse 14, Jesus says, If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I think these instructions speak for themselves and need little further explanation. Here, in these words, is the reason that assistant leaders at my summer camp clean toilets, because we were not greater than our master. If Jesus, the Son of God, would wash the feet of fishermen, then for us, his followers, there is no job that is beneath us. When he commands it, we will do anything for anybody. Because the worst of jobs has already been done for us, by the best of men. So we may not look scornfully at our poor neighbor and tell him, no, I will not help you carry your groceries home. We may not treat the person serving us in the restaurant or the grocery store with rudeness. No job is beneath us, and neither is any person that God has made. It's very formative to our souls to spend a little time working as a janitor. 
Jesus might want us later on in our lives to take on some seriously heavy-duty service among very sidelined people that involves lowly work. He's allowed to command that of us, and there's a strong chance he will. So in preparation for that call, I encourage you, as part of your own discipleship, to cheerfully accept whatever training is currently on offer to serve in humble ways. Husbands, do you shy away from changing your children's diapers or from getting up in the night to answer a screaming child? Is that always your wife's job? Don't let it be her job. You're being unkind to her and you're missing a priceless discipleship opportunity. Training in lowly service is on offer in your own home. Jesus went to the cross for you. Get up and serve your family. I call everyone in this room who wants to wear the name of Christ follower to be the kind of friend who says yes. Every time a friend calls up and asks you for help, I know you're busy, I know you carry many burdens of your own, but can you possibly say yes and help your friend who asks, can I borrow your lawnmower? Yes. Can you help me move on Saturday? Yes. Can you give me a ride to the airport at three o'clock in the morning? Yes. Can you watch my children so my wife and I can go on a date? Yes, of course I can. It's going to cost you something, but give your yes cheerfully. Thank you for asking me that. I'm so glad for the opportunity to practice my discipleship. It's the kind, this is the kind of Christian community that Jesus died to build. A family of people who are there for each other and who will say yes. This is where we start. It doesn't end here, but this is where we start. And I'd encourage us, let's make this the face we show to the world too. Offering to help, offering to serve, looking for ways that we can bless, taking the lowly jobs, being ready to say yes. Oftentimes, this kind of behavior is much more surprising than we expect, and it goes a long way to deepening our friendships, and it goes a long way to showing our friends what God is really like. And that, brothers and sisters, is always a surprise to everyone. I want you to imagine the figure of a great medieval king, maybe like the legendary King Arthur of England. I want you to imagine how he was viewed by his enemies. To his enemies, he might have been something terrible, the head of a powerful army that was to be feared. His enemies might have known him as nothing but a dangerous sword. But then the king's own people would have known him a little bit better. They might have known him as the maker of just laws and the keeper of a peaceful and prosperous kingdom. They might have loved their king in their own way and cheered whenever his banner was raised. But then there was the circle of his knights, and his knights would have known him better still. They would know their king as a brave and tireless warrior and as a faithful and noble leader, and they might have loved him enough to die for him. But only the king's own wife would know that he was also hilarious and patient and romantic and a writer of songs. And only she saw the burdens he carried in private day after day. In much the same way, the people who don't know our God, <coughs> excuse me, I'll say it again. <coughs> 
In much the same way, the people who don't know our God really know nothing at all about him. And what they imagine him to be like in their minds bears no resemblance at all to the reality. We know that because such were all of us once, and we have since been constantly surprised, haven't we? We've come to know him first as citizen, then as knight, and then as lover. And at every stage, there were new surprises. Our friends who don't love God don't love him because they don't know him as we know him. So the, the better we obey him, the better we reveal him. And the better we reveal him, the more we surprise them. So we serve and we love unreservedly because we have been loved and served unreservedly. We do it to serve our Lord Jesus. We do it to spare our brothers and sisters. And we do it to surprise the world. Amen.